we need to talk about investing. A Beginner Investor Podcast from Charles Stanley. Welcome back to We Need to Talk About Investing. I'm your host, Erica White, and today we're doing something just a little bit different. So we recently hosted a webinar here at Charles Stanley about everything you need to know about the upcoming tax year end, which is fast approaching, I might add, on April 5th, if you didn't already know that. So the webinar itself featured some of my fabulous and extremely qualified colleagues who gave us so much important information about everything from tax allowances to pensions and inheritance tax info. And honestly, there were so many amazing questions from audience participation that it just felt like we needed to share that wealth of knowledge on podcast form too. So if the audio itself isn't perfect, please do forgive us and look out for future webinars that we will be hosting because honestly, it was so much fun and it was so informative that we are already planning for many more informational sessions of that same medium in the very near future. So here's that webinar. Please do check it out. Welcome to the Charles Stanley Tax Year End webinar. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Eric White, and I'll be hosting you through the next 45 minutes alongside some very awesome and extremely knowledgeable guests who I'll be introducing as they appear. So each of these people that we'll be bringing on are experts in different areas that we'll be covering off today. And I'm very, very grateful that each of them has taken some time out of their busy days to come join us and share some wisdom. Thank you all as well, each and every one of you who is attending this webinar for taking the time out of your busy days also to be here. And honestly, Kudos to you for wanting to have all your ducks lined up for this very important and fast approaching day in all of our calendars. So for those of you that don't know, for all of us at Charles Stanley, April 5th is one of the most significant days basically of the entire year. And it's like a date that is circled in red in every single person's diary here. And it's something we spend tons of time firm wide, just kind of like working towards. So it's basically like our World Cup. We're going to take a look at the agenda here now. So as you glance over the agenda breakdown, I just want to say that we structured this event really, really consciously with you guys in mind. So we're definitely hyper aware that there are a whole lot of different knowledge levels here, ranging everywhere from people that are going to be listening in that are total beginners and finance noobs, and then all the way to advanced and people that are looking for some really high level macro analysis. So because of that, we have structured this um, kind of thoughtfully. So we have the more beginner and introductory topics front-loaded at the very start of the webinar with the topics getting progressively more and more advanced and detailed as time ticks on. So if you do categorize yourself as more of a novice and you find the first half hour really, really useful, but then it starts to feel way too complicated, please, of course, feel free to drop off. Oh, we won't be offended. And if you are more of a seasoned vet in the investing space, please do bear with us for the next 10 minutes or so before we get to the really nitty gritty stuff. Before we get started, I just want to kick things off with a little bit of something to get your brains kind of churning a little bit. So it's time for a little pop quiz we're going to have to get you guys kind of in the zone here. Uh, don't worry, this won't be graded. And before we actually get to this, I'm going to call upon our very first special guest. Some of you might recognize him. This is Rob Morgan. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Erica. 
So for those of you that don't know Rob, he is the chief analyst and spokesperson here at CSD with over 20 years of finance experience. And he is what I like to call a stock market guru, even though, Rob, I know you don't like that nickname that I have for you. <laughs> um, thanks so much for being here and welcome. We're going to use you to be answering the quiz questions. So I hope that you have come prepared. Oh, I think I have, yes. All good? All good, all good. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, let's test your knowledge, guys. Let's get this started. First question, why is the tax year end April 5th? Is it because April is traditionally a month to sort finances? Is it because it falls on St. Matthew Day, who is the saint of tax collection? Or is it because it was originally Lady Day, which is the start of the calendar year or was the start of the calendar year? Let's take a look at what you guys think here. It's going to be interesting to see the poll answers. Okay, interesting stuff. 52% of you said that it because it was originally Lady Day. Um, Rob, what's the right answer there? Uh, yeah, most people got that right. Bit of an odd question, that one. You've got to go back to medieval times for the right answer to that one. Lady Day was one of the important days in the religious calendar and the day for settling debts and rents. Originally the 25th of March, but the calendar got reset because the, the Julian calendar got out of line with the, the solar calendar. So 25th of March became 5th of April. Cool. I love that little history good, lesson. Good there. pub quiz fact. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the next question. Next quiz question here. What do we got? What does ISA stand for? Is it individual savings account? Is it independent savings account? Or is it interest savvy account? What do you guys think? Good job to 97% of you. I guess, Rob, I don't know that you need to necessarily answer that but of course you can go ahead rob what's that yeah. answer yeah. <laughs> yeah individual savings account yeah what is the best performing asset over the past year in pounds is it uk shares is it us shares or is it gold oh tight with us shares just squeaking by gold with 42 percent rob what is the answer to this question yeah, this was a tough one, actually, because of recent uh, price action. But the clue was in the colour of Erica's jacket. It's gold because of the obviously the recent um, market turmoil and, and gold has, uh, has has performed exceptionally well as a result of that. It's up uh, over a quarter in the past year. But if you'd asked that question only two or three weeks ago, it would have been US shares. So well done. If you got either of those answers, really, <laughs> you were pretty close. Let's take a look at the final quiz question here and hopefully... Your brains are all starting to move, start to feel like you're working your brains here. Uh, what is the most popular form of ISA? Is it a cash ISA, a stocks and shares ISA, or a junior ISA? Cash ISA was 60%. Rob, what's the answer? Yeah, it's cash ISA. It is cash ISA, even though interest rates are very low. Um but uh, yeah, quite often, um, almost as uh, almost twice as much goes into cash ISAs as, as stocks and shares, even though people get a personal savings allowance. Actually, the advantage for a lot of people isn't really there with cash ISAs much, uh, so much now, but uh, still they're very popular. Cool. Well, thank you so much for helping us with that. That's the first little bit that we'll be relying on you for this webinar, but it's certainly not the last, Rob. So stick around here. That is the end of the pop quiz. Hopefully you guys learned a little bit that you didn't know before. And now we're going to dive into some of the informational elements of 
this webinar. But before we actually do so, we're just going to do our due diligence here and hammer home a couple points to really keep in mind before you even get started investing in the first place, if that is something that you are interested in doing, which hopefully you are if you are here. So Rob, before you get started investing, we recommend you do what following things. Can you help us out here? Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to have a a really solid foundation in place before you're committing money to investments. And the golden rules really are paying off high interest debt. So that's credit cards, uh, expensive loans, and, and so on. That's a that's an essential prerequisite. Building an emergency fund. The last thing you want to do is be selling investments to fund short-term needs. So uh, perhaps uh, six-month expenditure is, is good practice in that regard. Uh, contributing to a pension. Well, if you're an employee, then you could be taking advantage of employer contributions as well as tax relief into uh, a pension scheme and that's very important to secure those ahead of uh, investments elsewhere. Absolutely. As well, it's also important really that we want to point out that we recommend that once you do start investing, you do so with at least a five-year time horizon in mind. So we recommend that you keep the money invested for at least five years or more. So you're putting it in with the intention of forgetting about it for the time being. So investing is supposed to be boring. That's kind of the point, right? Rob, that's something that you've taught me as I've gone through my investing journey. Yeah, absolutely. The volatility of markets mean they can't be relied upon in the shortest term. And that's obviously something we're seeing right now, which we'll get to later in the webinar. Yeah, for shorter term needs, it's best to best to use cash. And as we've seen, geopolitical risk can flare up very, really suddenly. Markets can remain very calm for a long period, but then all of a sudden drop. So psychologically difficult, often the market falls more quickly than, than it rises, rises gently and falls quite suddenly. So make sure that money is for the long term that's invested in, uh, in, in the stock market and other risk assets. Totally. So before we move on to the actual financial products themselves, I just super quickly want to touch on this nifty little flow chart that I had created when I started my investing journey about two years ago, and I literally had zero knowledge of where or how to even start. So one of my very first onboarding questions when I was trying to open up my CSD account was which account type do you want to open? And they gave the options ISA, Junior ISA, SIP, an investment account. And because I didn't even know the difference between any of them, in fact, I actually just assumed that I was to open an investment account because I was wanting to invest. I sent myself into a bit of a tailspin because I felt like, okay, if I don't know this, I don't even know which account I should open. This is too over my head. But we now have some of the bare bones info that you actually need. What about the account types that we offer here at CS? So I opened up an ISA, then that's obviously what made the most sense for me, but obviously in this case to each his own here. Okay, now we're going to go specifically on to financial products and the things that we need to know specifically for the tax year end. Starting with those of us, myself included, holding ISA accounts. So Rob, you have the floor here. What exactly do we need to know? What can you tell us? Yeah, so your your ISA allowance, that's... uh... £20,000, usually the first port of call for investors looking to save tax due to the, the simplicity and flexibility and the tax efficiency. So investments in ISAs or cash is uh, free from income tax and gains that you make on investments are also tax-free. So it's really important to use your ISA allowance ahead of investing outside of an ISA. You don't have to worry about tax. You don't have to declare anything on your tax return. So it simplifies your life as well. And there's two main types of vices, which are 
cash and stocks and shares, as um, we mentioned in the uh, in the quiz earlier. Just think of the ISA as the wrapper around whatever you choose to, to put in it. The key feature of an ISA is that you can access your money at any time. Obviously, if you're taking out a stocks and shares ISA, it should be for the longer term. But obviously, with a pension, you have to keep it much longer to retirement. Um, but with an ISA, it can be for something um, that is in the medium term rather than the longer term and, and retirement. So it's suitable for a variety of needs. And anyone who's a UK resident and uh, uh, over 18 can, uh, can take one out. And it's uh, also quite portable. So if you want to transfer from a, from a cash ISA to a stocks and shares ISA and vice versa, you can do that. If you're uh, happy to, uh, to take on more risk, uh, you can think about moving cash ISAs to stocks and shares if you want to. So I would love to talk a little bit about this ISA allowance and what that word actually means. Because again, this was a roadblock for me because in my head, an allowance to me means like a gift. So it means like you're getting given something. Can you just explain what allowance actually means in this capacity? Allowance is like in the sense that you get a new one each year. It simply means the maximum you can put in in a tax year, which is currently 20,000. And I think uh, we're probably expecting that uh, maximum to stay at that sort of going forward. But, uh, you know, you, you do get a new one each year. But obviously, if you you try and maximise your ISO allowance each year, you can build a, a really decent sized pot, which is all invested nice and tax efficiently. So I have a question from Richard. Thank you, Richard, for submitting this specifically about ISAs. So he says, can the £20,000 ISA allowance be split between two or more administrators? So provided that the sum is not collectively exceeded. So in his case, the majority of investments are with CS Direct, but he also has an ISA with a different company. How does that allowance work? Yeah, so it's down to the contributions in any one tax year. So you can only contribute to one stocks and shares ISA provider in a, in a tax year. You can have ISAs of different types. So you could have a cash ISA and a stocks and shares ISA with different providers in the same tax year. But um, you can only have one provider for each type. And obviously, the 20,000 limit is across all of the all of the different types. So if you've already contributed to a, a Charles Stanley ISA, you couldn't have another stocks and shares ISA provider for contributions in that tax year. But obviously, it would be fine if you went into another tax year and started a, a, an ISA with a different provider. Here's another question we have here for you, Rob. Can you claim a tax return on money you have paid income tax on, which you have subsequently put into an ISA? I'm not sure I'm understanding the question correctly. Basically, money in the ISA is, is completely separate to your sort of tax positions. So you can't claim any sort of losses or anything like that. Final question here is, are there any extra benefits for married couples relating to allowances or tax efficiencies? For a couple, obviously, you've got two ISA allowances, essentially. So you can take advantage of up to 40000 very cool. So double the allowance. If I have money in a savings account and I want to transfer it into my stocks and shares ISA to shelter it from tax before the tax year end, but I don't know yet what investments I want to be making with that cash and I don't want to feel pressured to make a quick decision without proper research, is that okay? Uh, yeah, you can hold cash temporarily in a stocks and shares ISA. So you don't have to feel, feel that you need to make a, a decision day one. You can hold it for a period of time and then either drip feed it in if you put in a, a lump sum, make uh, gradual purchases um, or, or else we'll just wait until you're ready to. Somebody said they didn't know they could convert a cash ISA to a stocks and shares ISA. 
What do you have to say about that, Rob? You can port a cash ISA to a, to a stock to shares and vice versa. Love it, love it. Okay, we're going to have to move on to take a look at junior ISAs, aka JISAs. So, Rob, the floor is yours again. Please do take us through everything that we need to know about JISAs specifically for the tax year end. Yeah, so junior ISA is, does what it says on the tin, really. It's another ISA allowance, this time for, for children. The limit is £9,000, which I think is a bit unfair. It should be £10,000, should be, should be exactly 50%. I, I think that's neater, but anyway, it's 9000 So it could have lots of uses. You can basically contribute to it each year. So you can build up a really, really big sum over time for education, a first car, getting married, or to accumulate a deposit on a house or just a general head start towards life. So just like a, an adult ISA, the junior ISA is tax efficient. You can have a, a cash one or you can have a stocks and shares one just in the same way. And any interest on cash or any interest on uh, income from any investments is tax free, as is any capital growth received from stock market investments. A lot of people wonder what happens at age 18. So basically, at that point, withdrawals are possible um, because it converts to an adult ISA. Um, and that means the pot can be useful at that point to pay for the university or uh, deposit on a house or car or whatever. Um, but it can also continue as an adult ISA from there on. And up to that point, the child doesn't even have to know about the ISA, the junior ISA. But once they're 18, they have to register on the account um, to withdraw or make changes to, to that account as it then becomes their adult ISA at that point. So the uh, parent or guardians are responsible for opening the account and can manage that. And um, But the investments do belong to the, the child. Right. We do have a question here that's relevant to what you were just saying, Rob. Are you able to withdraw from a JISA before the child reaches 18? And then brackets appreciating, of course, that it does belong to the child. No, not normally, no. Interesting. Another question here we have is JISAs are an amazing way to take advantage of the magic of compound returns, which is a concept Albert Einstein allegedly dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. Love that. Uh, because there is such a long time horizon involved. So can grandparents open accounts or contribute to existing accounts for their grandkids and not obviously not just grandparents, but aunts, uncles, etc. Are they able to contribute to a child's JISA that isn't their own yeah, they they can they can't open it. Only the parent can open. But uh, once it is open, they can uh, they contribute from 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 that point. Yeah. Can a grandparent open a JISA? Uh, no. I love this idea. I think it's such an amazing gift to be gifting a child with a long time horizon in mind something like this. So the parent is the one that can. The open. parent has to open the account. But, but loved but... ones can contribute. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It's like an amazing gift for a child. You can obviously uh, transfer a JISA as well. And so I mentioned earlier that you can transfer cash ISAs even to, to stocks and shares. And that has to be done via a transfer process. Don't think you can withdraw it and then open it uh, uh, again because you'll lose the tax-free status Interesting. when you do so. So it has to be a, an actual transfer process to do that. Okay. Uh, next question here is, is there any minimum amount you have to put in to open a JISA? Uh, no, you can you can open it. Uh, well, for instance, with ourselves, it would be um, a direct debit of fifty pounds a month or, or a lump sum of five hundred pounds. The next slide we're going to talk about is we're going to be discussing SIPs. So for this, we're going to be introducing a new panelist here. So Lisa Kaplan, Director of Foundation Planning here at CS. She is a pensions and future planning expert. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us. How's it going? Hi, Erica. Hi, everybody. So let's talk specifically about SIPs and all the things that we need to know about them for the tax year end. Then we can maybe start with this, Lisa. How does pension tax relief 
work. Essentially, you contribute to a pension from pre-tax income. So if you're doing that via your company payroll, um, that sort of goes and you never pay tax on that money. So for the benefit for basic rate taxpayers is 20% and for higher rate taxpayers, it's 40 or 45 for additional. And if you're not paying via payroll, you still get that tax back. The pension administrator claims the extra tax for you on your behalf and puts it straight into your pension. So say you've contributed out of your pocket £80, the pension administrator will go get the other £20 and you end up with 100 in your pension. And then at the end of the tax year, you claim back any higher or additional rate tax relief. It's a real boost at the beginning of your contribution that you get all that tax back effectively, that tax saving. How much can you contribute into a SIP? Can you just elaborate a little bit on that, please, Lisa? I'm afraid, Erica, we're back here to allowances that are not gifts, um, but amounts that you're allowed to contribute. To get tax relief, which is the big advantage of the pension, there is an annual allowance of £40,000 for most people. There's, I mean, there's some exceptions for high rate people, but essentially £40,000 for almost everybody. But you only get tax relief on your income in the year. So you would get tax relief on the lower of £40,000 and your earned income in that tax year. So the gift in this case, right, is that the government isn't taxing you for that portion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Again, that's something that has taken me a while to really wrap my head around. Can non-taxpayers benefit from this as well? Yes, but to a limited extent. Everybody can contribute after tax relief. The gross contribution of is £3,600. So what that means is non-taxpayers can contribute £2,880. They'll get the rest from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and end up with 3600 in their pension, you know, which then grows, etc. Of course, of course. So how can somebody optimize their pension contributions? Do you have any advice on that? I think people often under-contribute to a pension. They should think about contributing more. Um, employees, the simplest, most tax-effective way to do that is via payroll because they don't have to worry about claiming the tax relief back at the end of the year. Also, if you do it via salary sacrifice, which many employers offer, there's national insurance savings too. Obviously, don't if you're not doing it via payroll and you've got your own personal pension that you're making contributions to, don't forget to claim back the higher rate of tax if you're a higher rate taxpayer. Here's a question, an audience question, which I think is kind of relevant to what you're saying, Lisa. So a question here from Allison. Uh, does the £40,000 limit include employer contributions? If just employee contributions, do I need to add employee and SIP contributions together to check the £40,000 limit? Alison, thanks. That's a good question and a good reminder. Yes, it's not just, it's everybody's contribution. You employ your employee to number of pensioners all added together. An individual can have £40,000 after tax relief in their pension to get tax relief, essentially, each year. Is a SIP better than an ISA? Could you maybe walk us through the characteristics of a SIP as opposed to of an ISA? The main difference is the, the timing of, of the tax benefit for a pension. You get all that wonderful tax relief right at the beginning 
Then, like an ISA, while everything's inside the pension, it's completely tax-free. So there's no tax on gains, there's no income tax. But at the end of the day, when you're taking money out of the pension, there's the difference again. The first 25% of money you take out of a pension is tax-free. But after that, any money you take out of a pension is regarded as income and it's taxed as income. So you're going to take want to be taking care about tax years and you know, spreading things over tax years and not breaking through allowances and things. The ISA is completely tax-free at the end. The main big characteristic difference between the two is flexibility. Once you've put money into a pension, you really can't get your hands on it until you're at least 55 and that's going up, 56, 57 for some people. That can be good, that can be bad. I mean, because you're not, you're not tempted, but that money is locked away and you can't get at it. Um, ISO is much more flexible. You just go to, you know, you say, give me the money, basically, right. and it comes, comes back to you without any tax. If I were to open up a SIP, it would be, I'd be putting money in and I would not be able to even touch that money until I was 55. Is that what you're saying? That's right. I mean, the, the advantage of a, of a pension is much greater for higher rate taxpayers. And we're all going to want to stop working one day and we're still going to want to live our lives, go out and, you know, enjoy it. That's the role of a pension. So you've got money later on in life to support yourself. And that's, that's a really important thing. And, and as the slide says, it's the number one saving goal for people. Of to course. an extent, that's been taken care of for employed people by auto-enrollment. But that may not be enough. And also there are a whole lot of people who don't benefit from that because they're self-employed. What is the status of uncrystallized funds post age 75 as regards to taxation at death to beneficiaries? Good question. The key thing is being over 75, funds crystallize at 75. What it means is before you're 75 on death, there's a huge inheritance tax benefit is that it's not regarded as generally not regarded as part of your estate, whatever's in your pension, and it goes completely tax-free to your nominated beneficiaries of people you tell the pension administrators you want to benefit. After you're 75, that becomes regarded as income in the hands of the beneficiaries as they take it out of the, the sort of the pension world. And it is sort of added onto their income to work out. And they, again, you, you know, you'd want to think about how much you're taking out and when and spreading it over tax years and things like that. I was under the impression if somebody opened a pension today, minimum pension age is now 57 rather than the previous 55. Yeah, if you're opening up a, a, a pension today, that's true. It's not true for, for existing pensions. It depends on the pension. You know, I have to give a little bit of a caveat there. A follow-up question about the uncrystallized funds. Somebody says, so should I crystallize now that I'm 75? Keith, I can't speak about you individually, but you I mean you don't have to do anything. It, it, when you say crystallize, what do you mean? It will crystallize by itself. Before one is 75, I should be careful. Um, you can consider taking out your tax-free cash as well. And then Lisa, just a final question for you here. Uh, why should people take advantage of tax relief while it lasts? Because, I mean, it's free money, basically. You're getting your tax back. I gave the example of £100. Essentially, if you didn't put that into a pension, a higher rate taxpayer would pay £40 on that and they'd end up with £60 in their pocket. If they put it into a pension, they end up with £100 in the pension. So they've saved that tax. Of course, you know, it's in a pension, you can't get your hands on it and you'll pay tax when you take it out, but you'll probably be paying less tax later on. 
they may change the rules in the future as well. Yeah. We don't know. Perhaps uh, relief at higher rates of tax won't be available forever. If you are drawing a state pension, can you still contribute to a SIP? Yes, you can. Another question here. Is there a 500 pound tax shelter on pensions? It doesn't apply to pensions. If we're talking about the, the savings shelter, pensions are tax protected already. Can you use your pension to fund a SIP? They are the same thing. A SIP is a kind of pension. Right. I understand there to be a maximum of £1 million on personal pension. What happens when this number is reached? And how does this work with the gains and losses of investment value moving either side of this number? Very technical question. Essentially, the lifetime allowance, which is just more than a million pounds, is the amount of money you're allowed to take out or how much you crystallize in the pension. It's not how much you put in. It's how much the pension is worth when you're taking income from it. It doesn't look at contributions. It looks at the value of the pension. So it does move with investment markets, you know, with with how things are doing in terms of investments. I think, Lisa, if you are up for it, we would love to host a webinar where we maybe spoke to you specifically a little bit more in detail about some of these topics, because it does seem like people have a lot of questions and you're definitely more than equipped to answer. But I think that if people do have any questions or want to talk to somebody, Lisa, would they be able to uh, reach out to your team? How would that work? If anyone has any questions, by all means, please feel free to direct them to me via the the, the help desk or um, lisa.kaplan at charles-stanley.co.uk. I try not to be a pensions board, but I love pensions. And I'm really happy to talk to people about them. And I think that you'd probably be able to direct them into the right areas or to get somebody will get on the phone with them to answer any future uh, questions, because that's what we're here for. Right. Of course. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. I'm again conscious of time. We do have to kind of keep moving here on to other considerations. So namely capital gains tax, as well as inheritance tax. So Lisa, back to you here as the expert. What do we need to know about these things with the tax year end in mind? I'll be quick. Capital gains tax, the important thing, everybody has an allowance of £12,300 of gains they can make before they pay any capital gains tax. So if you're thinking of selling a big lot of shares and crystallizing a capital gains tax, consider spreading it over to tax years to double up your allowance. The rates of capital gains tax are there on the screen, 10% basic rate, 20% if you're a higher rate taxpayer, and those rates are higher for second properties, 18 and 28%. So it depends on how much income tax you pay. Um, But the main thing about capital gains tax is if you have a big gain, you can set losses off against the gains, and also you can spread it over to tax years, which is a good thing. Inheritance tax, not so much a tax. There's only one big issue about inheritance tax that is sort of tax year related, which is you can give £3,000 per tax year away and it's immediately out of your estate. The simplest way to deal with inheritance tax is to be very generous and give money away. Actually, that's not true. I think the best way to deal with inheritance tax is to spend, spend, spend. But you are also allowed to make smaller gifts of £250 a year to as many people as you like as long as they're not the people you've given the £3,000 to. Really, I mean, what I often see is grandparents giving their children the £3,000 and then giving their grandchildren £250 on birthdays, Christmas, 
whatever. Very cool. Very cool. Here's a question. I think this was, this applied to a slide before, but I think it's applicable for a lot of these things. Can you backdate or top up contributions from previous years? Yes and no. I spoke about the £40,000 annual allowance. You can carry that forward for, for three years. So you get three years plus the fourth year. So you get an allowance of £160,000, you know, if you haven't used it, but you still need income in this tax year to get the tax. The tax relief always has to come out of this year's income tax. And people often trip up on that one. Question here. I have been given RSUs from my company, which vest in April. How does the tax work on them? Not my area of expertise. Get further advice. I believe RSUs are are treated as income and are taxed as income. But that's something that you would recommend that reach out to somebody within the company and we can talk to you properly about that. Yeah, that's great. great. Okay. Okay, great. Again, conscious of time. I feel like we could talk about these things all day. But Rob, we're going to go to you. We're going to use your expertise here again as we talk quickly about investment types. So this may be old news to some of you, but for others, this is a great opportunity to just go over some really important information. Rob, if you want to go ahead, the floor is yours about investment types. Lots and lots of different investment types that you can hold in a direct account with Charles Stanley. Literally thousands of funds and shares. And see, the diverse approach is, is going into funds which are made up of lots and lots of different investments themselves, be they shares or bonds or property, whatever that uh, fund uh, invests in. Lots of people like to do the share research and, uh, and buy the shares themselves. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And uh, that's fine. And you can also have a mix between the two. But, um, you know, just moving on into sort of other considerations, we do have some resources you can draw upon if you are looking to select investments with the cash that you've put in your ISA or SIP or junior ISA, then you can take a look at uh, what we call the uh, preferred list, which is a uh, fund investments which have been pre-approved and selected by our collectors research team here at Charles Stanley. So they've been through the process of due diligence, assessing the, the manager and their capabilities. The team take a three to five year view, so they're not sort of short term investment sort of predictions or anything like that. But um, you know what we do do is look for funds that excel in their respective areas. Uh, it does include passive funds, so there we're looking for, for transparency and obviously very low cost. And with, uh, with actively managed funds, we're looking at things like risk, style, uh, governance, charges, of course, uh, and just the other sort of technical aspects of, of the funds, including sort of operations, uh, inflows and outflows, capacity constraints and things like that. So what we're looking for is a, an identifiable edge that that uh, particular fund has and makes it uh, unique and does something different. Or in the case of passive funds, it's low cost, so it can keep very close to the uh, the, the performance of the index that it's uh, that it's trying to follow. Moving on from that, for investors that want to be more hands off and, and not select their their own investments, even from our our own fund ideas, we do have our multi asset funds, which um, give you a diversified portfolio in one investment. So they're managed by our fund managers here at Charles Stanley, encompassing lots of different areas. There's funds with different risk levels, and that gives you a, a diversified portfolio, one-stop shop. So, um, and we'll have, be having a, a word with Chris, who's on later in the webinar, uh, about the market outlook, and uh, he's, he's manager of those funds. That's all I have to say on that. But apart from when you are selecting funds, make sure you read the literature carefully, especially the, the key investor information documents, so you can understand the risks in the fund that you're buying. Thank you so much for all of that, Rob. So now before we open up to the Q&A portion of the webinar, let's quickly go over a couple key dates to keep in mind here. Rob? 
back to you for this one. I'll rattle through this because it's really quick. Basically, the key date is the 5th of April. You can pay in to your account by a debit card just before midnight on the uh, on the 5th of April. We don't suggest you, you do that because something might happen. Um, your internet might go down or your or your debit card might not work. So try and do it bit, uh, before that point. And there's some earlier dates for paying money in from other sources as well. Bed and ISA refers to the, to the process of selling shares or funds and buying back the same security in the, uh, in the ISA. We can arrange that for you. Earlier dates for those uh, facilities. For this portion, we want to welcome our final guest, Chris Ainsco, Director of Asset Management here at CS. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us the final part of this webinar. How's it going? Hi, Erica. Thanks for inviting me along today. And it seems like we've got a very engaged audience today. So please totally, please totally. put those questions into the chat box and hopefully we can cover off as many of those as we can in whatever time's left today. But Absolutely. I'm happy to field anything market-related in any area that people do want to talk about. Amazing. Thank you so much. So now I'm going to just go through some of these questions. Is residential property abroad subject to CGT? Yes, is the answer. Often there'll be double taxation agreements and stuff like that. But essentially, the revenue looks at your your global assets if you pay tax in the UK. Can the £3,000 allowance be split into four payments to two people? I'm assuming that this is for inheritance tax? Yeah, it's £3,000 in total. It can be split between as many people. You could, If you haven't used it last year, you can use that as well. So you get 6,000 and it's 3,000 per person. So if it's a couple, it could be six. Can you invest in gold or other commodities through funds? Yeah, you can. So basically there's a few options for investing in gold. One would be a physical gold ETF, which is easy to buy rather like buying a share. Um, and you could also buy specialist funds, which invest in commodities. Uh, and natural resources as an option as well. There's quite high risks associated with some of those, particularly with the ETFs surrounding commodities. So I definitely would sound a warning there because some of the ETFs or a large number of the ETFs, especially on industrial metals, are based upon uh, derivatives contracts rather than the physical metal. And rolling over those derivatives contracts at the month end leads to, you know, can lead to built-in losses. So they are more traders' investments than something to keep for the long term. But if you're buying a physical gold ETF, then they avoid that scenario. I think I'd add to that as well. We see quite a lot of people buying things like gold miner vehicles and sort of expecting the gold miners to track the gold price, which over the long term might be true. But clearly, as we've seen in recent days, some of these gold miners exposed to geographies around the world might diverge quite substantially from those asset bases. Yeah, with the, with the gold miners, although some of them are geared to the gold price through operational gearing with inflation as well, their input prices are more as well. So if the oil price is also rising, that doesn't help them. So they're not necessarily a pure play. Lots of moving parts. Okay, I have three questions that are kind of of the same vein. What are the benefits of bed and breakfasting within an ISA? And then someone else says, how does bed and breakfasting within an ISA work? And again, does bed and ISA have to be sold and rebought with the same supplier? I don't even know what these words, what bed and breakfasting means. Okay, so basically what you can't do is is sell something and buy something back and harvest a capital gain or loss. There's a there's a limit to, I believe, a 30-day uh, limit. So what, what people can do is, is sell something or buy something very similar or they can sell what does the, what does the bed and breakfast what does that mean like that's a I'm, very old term it, okay. I, I haven't heard that I don't think I've heard that for for about 15 years but yeah. um 
yeah, you used to be able to sort of harvest gains and and um, sell and rebuy something, harvest a, a capital gain that way. That's not allowed. But what you can do is sell something and then rebuy it in an ISA. So you crystallize that gain or loss. But in the ISA, you've got the investment, but you have to actually sell it and rebuy it. Okay. Question here. I'm in the process of investing in a defined pension contribution ISA, but may, may not be able to complete by the 5th. Can I accrue the 40 grand in the account and pay after the fifth into the defined pensions contribution? I'm a bit confused by the question because it's talking about ISA and pension. In terms of the pension, I'm afraid tax year is the tax year. You'll only get tax relief in the year that you make the contribution. Right. And right. you can't carry that over. Right. And that that's a hard stop tax year end and then the next year begins, right? Yep, that's right. If each of you had 20 grand cash burning a hole in your ISA, where would you each invest, including Erica? I feel like we can't answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) But I I appreciate the question itself. (laughs) We do appreciate the question. Yeah, we do have a great list of suggestions that we have online that people can look to if they're looking for inspiration for areas to be investing in. Rob, that's something you can talk yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got the um, the preferred fund list uh, for, as a resource and um, hopefully you'll find some, some inspiration. Can you talk about the preferred fund list just generally? And Because I feel like people don't understand how many minds are put into the thoughtfulness of those lists? Yeah, we've got a team of, um, of four individuals whose sole job it is to research funds here at Charles Stanley. And, um, you know, they do a great job of doing the due diligence on, on fund managers, meeting them, understanding their, their process and, and philosophy. Uh, there is a bewildering array of, of different funds out there. So really what our aim with that list is condensing it down to sort of a manageable number of uh, of funds for people to look at as a bit of a shortcut but um you know uh, what we do want to have with the list is is not a selection of funds who are all going to do the same thing in the same types of markets it's deliberately varied so that in a growth environment there are funds that are are able to outperform but there's also uh, there's also funds that you know, to tend to earn their stripes in more difficult times. So there's a mix of styles that will mean over short periods, about half the funds underperform, about half the funds outperform. That's that's by design. Over the longer term, what, what we aim for is three, five, 10 years that over that sort of period that uh, in the case of active funds, the fund managers stock picking skills really start to come to the fore over shorter term factors such as style so that's what we're looking for to emphasize that point these are the same analysts that are creating the preferred list for me as an investment manager at charles stanley to hunt from so it's not a different subset going off to charles Stanley direct and others internally i'm looking at these investment universities and using the research of these guys when i'm building the multi-asset suites that we manage in the asset management team Absolutely. And Chris, this is a question um, for you. So historically, the market's response to geographical events tend to be short-lived. What does Charles Stanley Analyst suggest regarding doing what to do during current market volatility? Yeah, I think looking back at historic periods of volatility, we've had a few in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic and then sort of the back end of 2018 as well, when we had a bit of a Federal Reserve triggered spook in the markets. I mean, the current crisis is first and foremost a humanitarian crisis, and we must start with that. It feels, as investors, sometimes a little bit callous to talk about investment risk and returns when there is a pretty dire humanitarian crisis on the borders of Europe. But from a risk management and portfolio construction perspective, 
I guess there's two points that I sort of emphasize there is one, the first order impacts of these kind of events are very difficult to position for. So talking war, refugees, humanitarian problems and the likes of it. It's more the second order impacts that we'd encourage people to look at. So the energy crisis, the inflation spike, what impacts that might have on growth around the world and those sort of things which you can then position your portfolio for. Now, generally speaking, markets do have a knee-jerk reaction to these. People don't like uncertainty, and markets are discounting mechanisms, really, that's trying to look through that uncertainty. But I'd caveat that with the fact that when we come out of this, and these are things that we hope will resolve themselves in time and we will come through them, we are then going back into a world of slightly sort of tightening financial conditions around the globe. So we've had a lot of money thrown at the system over the last few years through central bank actions, policy responses, low interest rates and the likes. But we're going to be coming out of this crisis towards a slightly tighter and more constrained world. So where we've seen double digit returns from global equity markets over quite persistent periods, we're probably expecting slightly more muted responses from this. So we do expect things to recover, but possibly not in the rapid and high velocity sense that we saw after the COVID crash. Thank you so much for that, Chris. A question here. Can you say something about the way you determine the sustainable funds that you recommend? I know that sustainable investing is something that is really important to me and something that I've asked a lot of questions about, especially to Rob. So I think maybe you're the best suited to talk about these sustainable funds that we have recommended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think first and foremost, that would be a, the team's qualitative approach to selecting those because, yeah, absolutely, you don't want to, to, to select a, a responsible investment and then find it's it's got sort of hidden things that you weren't, uh, you weren't aware of in there. Uh, I mean, obviously, that type of investing does mean different things to different people. So we, we are aware of that. But we do you know go to great lengths to make sure that those managers are essentially uh, walking the walk as well as uh, as talking the talk in terms of their uh, kind of credentials and really that's drilling down into their philosophy and taking a look at sort of how they evidence that through their actions. Uh, I think ordinary investors can get a good feel of that for looking at things like impact reports that the um, fund managers produce and also it's, it's important to look at the sort of the resources that the team has as well uh, and whether that sort of pool of, of resources kind of internally sourced or whether it's externally and, and we tend to prefer that sort of internal collaborative approach within the uh, teams. So, yeah, there's a whole section of our due diligence that's devoted to that actually for every single fund. But that's obviously highlighted much more in, uh, in respect to the, the funds that are sort of marketing themselves as, uh, as responsible as you'd expect. I think that's sort of hit the nail on the head that looking at different rating agencies can give you a very different response to this. So I think the question highlights Morningstar and you'll see different ratings for different sustainable or environmental environmental social governance vehicles, depending on which provider it is you're looking at, so a Morningstar versus an MSCI versus a Sustainalytics. It's such a new area of development that people are still getting to grips with the data and their way of ranking it. So you can get very different outcomes depending on where you're looking there, which does then need that second level of due diligence to look beyond just the badge at the top of it to see what's actually going on underneath the lid of these things. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples of sort of what we would consider very sustainable and responsible funds getting four out of five globes rather than the five out of five globes or whatever it is for their rating, which is probably not merited. They should, they should be having a top rating, but it's because of the universe where they invest and it not being rated and um, other sort of you know nuances like that. So when you start to drill down and, and actually look at what's in the portfolio and speaking to the managers, then you can get a, good, a better handle on that. I think sort of a more comprehensive fund ratings are 
are going to develop over time and be and it'd be easier for people to select funds on that basis. Okay, I am conscious of time here because we are already 15 minutes over, which to be totally honest with you, I just feel like this time absolutely flew by. But um, thank you so much to Lisa. Thank you so much to Chris. And thank you so much, of course, to Rob for all of your expertise and all of your help here with this webinar. I personally found it fascinating. So I do hope that everybody was that was listening learned stuff. They had some questions answered. And I hope that you know people go away from this feeling positive about what was received here because I'm, I'm walking away from this really like I learned a lot. So thank you guys so much for all of your expertise. That was awesome. It's a pleasure. I hope, uh, hope people got a decent amount out of it. Absolutely. And thank you to every single one of you for all tuning in to this webinar. This is something that we're trying. It's something new that we haven't done a lot of before, but honestly, just seeing the way that you guys received it and all the questions that you guys asked, I can see that there is a pretty genuine appetite here for future webinars. So please do um, keep that in mind because um, I'll be pushing for more of these webinars in the future. And we hope to see you guys at some of them soon. Thank you guys all so much again, and we hope we look forward to it. Bye everyone. We need to talk about investing. That's it for another episode of We Need to Talk About Investing for that very special tax year-end webinar session. If you learned something or if you liked what you heard, please do go ahead and like, share, comment, subscribe, engage with us in any way that you see fit. And if you like the idea of webinars or attending webinars, please do stay tuned for more information about that because I know that's a medium that we will be pushing in the future. It's such a great way to get information out and to hear directly from some of the amazing experts here at Charles Stanley. So look out for more of those and we hope to see you at one maybe in the future. Bye-bye. A beginner investor podcast from Charles Stanley. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.